Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn to John 13. John 13, and we'll read the first 17 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit, give us wisdom, help us to understand this word. And Father, I pray that we would be given an understanding that would lead us to do what is here commanded. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So last Sunday... We went through a broad overview of the Upper Room Discourse, as it's called, uh, chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John, where we looked at Jesus serving and Jesus warning and Jesus comforting and then finally praying for uh, his uh, disciples. And now we're zooming in to look at each of the sections in this. Uh, in these five chapters. Uh, this, this is a record of Jesus' last evening, last hours before he is crucified. 
before he is arrested, before he is humiliated and mocked, before he is crucified and before he dies. This is the last, his last words, his last actions. Remember this as we work through, work our way through the next five chapters over the next months. Jesus knew this about all those men that he was talking to that night. He knew that they would forsake him in the coming hours. He knew they would turn their back on him. They would run and hide. They would leave Jesus to suffer alone, save John. And yet, he still loved them to the end. These guys are going to flee from him and he is going to continue to love them to the end. Not merely with the words he leaves them in these five chapters, but more importantly with his broken body and his shed blood. With the actual works he did on their behalf. Even as they're scattering, he's dying. Even as they're scattering, the atoning blood, the only atoning blood in all of the worlds, he was shedding for them. Now, the first thing to note about this scene is recorded for us in verse 2. The scene is set, and there is more going on here than the disciples would have realized. They didn't, they didn't perceive everything that was going on. Um, they would, you know, that they... Judas, right... Judas, who throughout these Gospels has always had that modifier added to his name, Judas, the betrayer of the Lord, is being devoured by the devil. He is being sifted and devoured by that roaring lion. Right? As Jesus condescends to wash the feet of his disciples, Judas is is being more and more puffed up with pride. As Jesus humbles himself, right, and condescends, Judas is exalting himself by, by giving no resistance to that roaring lion, the devil. He's there to do the devil's work. He's in league with the devil. He is being devoured. He's being used. He's a tool of the devil and think for a moment of Jesus washing the feet of Judas. Think about that. It would take an incredible hardness of heart for Judas not to show any sign of shame as, as Jesus, you know, performed this kindness to him. I mean, we, if, if we were in the same situation, at least our face would flush. Or we'd get kind of angry or we'd want to deflect and create a distraction so that he didn't go through with that because that sort of intimate touch, that sort of uh, closeness and just that example of humility when you are about to betray your Savior or not your Savior in his case, when you're about to betray this man that you followed for three years and you've been devoted to, well, Jesus is heaping burning coals on his head. Jesus is loving his enemy while he washes his feet. And Judas, of whom Jesus said it would have been better had he never been born, must have found it very uncomfortable to endure this love of Christ. 
It must have been excruciating for him to receive this token of condescension and love from, from Jesus, or, or, or perhaps not. Perhaps not. I mean, perhaps his conscience was so seared that he felt nothing when Christ loved him. This is dull. He was just numb to it. But his, his feelings of remorse, his return of the silver pieces to the chief priests and elders, and then his suicide speak to a troubled conscience. All those things speak to a troubled conscience. But like Esau, though, he found no place for repentance, though he may have sought for it with tears. What a sad Sad situation to be in. Jesus washed Judas's feet that night. And Judas was given over to his sin, so even in the face of such love, he was not moved to love himself. And that is what happens when we betray our Lord, right? Our hearts will never be moved in this life and through all eternal ages to love the Son of God. Our hearts will remain resistant to the love of God through an eternal age. Turn your back on God and be fearful because He may turn His back on you. To that point, think of these verses in relation to Judas in your your own temptation to turn away from God, right? From, from Hebrews, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Now think of that passage in regard to Judas. What this passage says is that the devil cast into the heart of Judas to betray him. And the devil works that way. He works by suggestions. Did you know that about the devil? Those suggestions are the work of the devil. He works by suggestions. And then the man who receives those suggestions opens his heart to them, mulls them over, lets them take hold, and then that's how sin is conceived. Right? Such was exactly what happened to Eve. And such is, is what will happen when we, um, you know, if, if we do not take up the shield of faith. What does the shield of faith do? The shield of faith extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. Those aren't literal flaming arrows. Those are the flaming arrows of the suggestions of evil that Satan would have you do. Right? Judas did not have a shield of faith. He had no shield. He wasn't ready for combat with the devil. He had his wicked heart. He had his lust for money. Remember, he always used to go into the, chain, the, 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 the change box. And, he had, and his suggestions from the enemy of his soul, the devil, he had those. 
And there was the Son of God, the one who is love, washing that man's feet. And out of Jesus' mouth come these cutting words while he is washing those feet. You are clean, but not all of you. And that really gets the apostles' heads spinning around. Did you hear what he said? He said, we're clean, but not all of us. So insane is the sinful mind, right? You agree with that? The sinful mind is insane? It is. So delusional is the mind darkened by the devil. So deceived is the mind that's entwined with the sinful nature and not freed from the sinful nature. Judas was probably not thinking of himself when Jesus said those words. But not all of you. He wouldn't have been, he probably has five reasons right at that moment. It applies to all the other men in the room and not to him. He probably thinks he is doing the very work of God. He's faithful to the traditions. He's faithful to the elders. He's faithful to the scribes. He's doing the work of the religious leaders. He's on the side of the angels, he thinks. He probably thought that Jesus meant that 11 were unclean and he was the singular clean man. How easy it is for the devil to get us to entertain such thoughts, isn't it? Have you ever despised the very kind of sin in others that you are particularly tempted to enter into or that you are in fact actually giving yourself to? Oh, oh, oh. Parents, children, your children are angry, and the last thought you want to have is, boy, he learned that from me, right? You know, we we live with double standards. Um, The blood of Christ absolves us of that particular sin, but the brother who gives himself to that sin is just a weak brother a fool, you know, just lacking self-control. What a, what a weakling. And this is how sin twists us up. And it is likely that Judas was judging his brothers while giving himself a pass. In fact, we know it is so. And we know that the other disciples were doing exactly the same thing. John leaves it out, but Luke records that after they began the Passover meal, Jesus pronounces a woe on the man by whom he will be betrayed. Then we read this, and they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do these things. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Oh, man. Oh, sweet upper room, you know, that sweet upper room where, the, where Jesus is with his lambs and they're just soaking up this incredible teacher. No, no, they're having an argument about who's greatest. You may be shocked by this, but 
Brothers and sisters, anytime you get more than two mothers in a room, do you know they are jockeying for position based upon the greatness of their children and their righteousness of their educational choices? Do you know that? If you're a woman who's a mother, you know it. Every time men get in a room together, they are also jockeying for position by being quick to share how manly they were in this or that situation this week. You got to hear what happened to me and how I handled it. That's called locker room talk. And we love it. I mean, what else would we, would we talk about if it weren't for our conquests, however stupidly little they are? The forces of evil like to create divisions by tapping into our pride. The forces of evil were seemingly having a field day in the upper room that night. Yet Jesus knew how to counteract these weak forces and these weak men by giving them an example of humility, warning them, comforting them, and ultimately praying for them. Now, then, from Judas, we turn to the Apostle Peter. The one who would deny Christ three times in the next few hours. Judas the betrayer, Peter the denier. Jump forward in John 13, and that's where we read of Jesus telling Peter that he would deny him three times that night. Note, it was after Judas had departed. Judas left, and then Jesus discloses to Peter three times. Right? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where, where are you going? Um... Where I go, you cannot, cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Oh. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Before you know, 4 a.m. when those roosters are crowing, you'll have already denied me three times. And so G Jesus laid aside his outer and upper uh, garments, girded himself with a towel, and poured water into a basin. And then he goes about the room doing the work of a servant, no doubt after they had argued about their greatness. I think he goes to foot washing because they had been arguing about their greatness. You want to see great? See me serve you as a slave serves his master. See me do this humiliating work. This work of foot washing in and of itself would not have been strange to these men. and It was a custom of the day, right? It's, it's kids, you just came in from outside playing with the neighbors, go wash your hands. Thoroughly, right? At least that's the rule in the Dion household, right? When you had guests over and they had journeyed and walked and gotten filthy, this was a way to show honor to your guests. 
It was the custom of the host to bless his guests in this way. The host would not have done the work himself, but would have had his servants do that work on his behalf. This was a common thing in Jerusalem. We see, and it's a common thing in Scripture. We see it in, uh, we see Abraham wash the feet of his three guests. He does it. You know, it's an old tradition. Abigail washed the feet of David's servants when David sent his servants to Abigail for that marriage proposal. Abigail washes their feet to welcome them. In Luke 7, we read of Jesus rebuking Simon the leper. Right? Remember Jesus in the home of Simon the leper. And Jesus says to him, uh, Simon, uh, let's go back. Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> and he replied, say it, teacher. Moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will he love the more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my hair, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Right? So in the hospitality of Simon was demonstrated through this lack of, of foot washing. So what makes Jesus' action remarkable was not that feet were washed, which would be sort of remarkable for us. It's not a practice that we do. But that he did the foot washing. That's what's remarkable about it. Jesus the head of the table, the master of the house, right? He did the foot washing. Peter's troubled by it, of course. He sees this and he's like, okay, this is out of order. This is not the way things are supposed to work. And he's like, I'm going to be righteous and I'm going I'm to refuse it because this is, I'm going to honor Jesus. Or do you wash my feet? I mean, perhaps it's an innocent question because it is awkward. It's awkward what's about to happen. To which Jesus responds, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, you really don't have a clue about what is happening right now, but you will. You're going to understand what's happening, so, so just go, go with it. Go with me in this. I mean, that we might learn that lesson. Wait until we either understand or are submitted to the will of God. When difficult providences crash into our lives that make us instantly questioning our salvation and the goodness of the Lord, we show that we haven't learned this lesson. Right? Wait, and God may reveal to you the why of the what. Why this is happening. He won't do it instantly. He often doesn't. He most often doesn't. Right? Ryle says this. He's, he says, all is going on well, even when we think all is going on ill. And in due time, God may give you the why. He may not. But wait for it. Do not despair while you wait. Wait. Peter now gets more pugnacious. He, Peter 
wonderful Peter. Peter was the guy in the class who was answering every question. Half of them brilliantly right and half of them absolutely wrong. But he's bold. He's ready to speak. He gets more pugnacious, though. He does not accept Jesus' words about wait and you will see. And so he just makes a declaration, a command. He asserts himself to Jesus and says, Never shall you wash my feet. Not going to happen. I'm righteous. Calvin says on this verse, It is a common fault that ignorance is closely followed by obstinacy. He's ignorant in asking the question. He's obstinate in making the demand. And isn't that true? Ignorance is often followed by obstinacy. You don't know what's going on. You're perceiving things wrong. You haven't waited on the Lord. You haven't studied. You haven't searched the scriptures. And you just get dogmatic in what you think is right and what you think is going on. You just nail it. And you're completely off the mark. That's what's happening here. Peter may have wanted to show honor to Christ, but now his unwillingness to follow his lead shows the very opposite. He is dishonoring Christ. And then Jesus is like, well, Peter, if that's the case, if you truly will not allow me to wash you, well, then you're lost. Now Jesus is sort of shifting from foot washing to like regeneration. He's pivoting to like, if you don't have my my new birth, my life, the Holy Spirit coming to you to cleanse you from your sin, then, then you're lost. That's the import of Jesus' response. And it goes beyond the, the washing of dirt from the feet. Um, if you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Meaning we are all sinners in God's sight. Deny that and you've denied the faith. You've denied that faith in Christ is necessary. Peter then, ever ready to express every one of his thoughts without much thought, immediately then just goes to the other side and says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Wash all of me. Wash me, wash me, wash me, wash me, wash me, all over. And we think, what faith? What faith? He wants, really wants Jesus washing. What faith? He really wants to be washed. He he really, he really gets what's going on. Jesus very calmly. I think leans forward, looks him in the eyes and says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Now clearly Jesus is using this foot washing as a picture of something bigger, and in, and in his correction he's told Peter just now, that he is clean. He's clean. How is he clean? He's clean because he's put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that faith has now been credited to him as righteousness. He's clean. When, the, when God Almighty looks down upon Peter, he sees those righteous robes of Jesus Christ. This cleaning is a picture of regeneration of the Spirit having worked in Peter. And that regeneration will lead to the complete eradication of all of Peter's sins through sanctification all the way through glorification, which will inevitably follow from the original regenerating work. That original regeneration is seen through to complete purity in him. He is clean and will be clean because of being cleaned. He is a saint and a sinner, and his union with Christ by faith has sanctified and is sanctifying him. Right? He only needs his feet to be cleaned, and that will mean in time by Christ's continuing work that his hands and his head will be clean. And so if you want to read more about what I'm talking about here, then read John Murray's work on definitive and progressive sanctification. There's a sense in which your, your sanctification is done and not done. We are sanctified in Christ, saints, once and for all, and we are made holy in Christ over the course of our Christian lives. And so that kingly reign of sin has ended, and the mortification of indwelling sin continues. And this is what Jesus is speaking about when he responds to the apostle Peter's exclamation, saying, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And all of this would become abundantly clear to the Apostle Peter, wouldn't it? Who would one day write that believers in Christ are a holy nation, and then just two verses ahead, a holy nation that must abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Holy. Getting holy. So enough on that. Progressive and definitive sanctification. Verse 12, Jesus finishes the foot washing, sits back down at the table and says, do you know what I have done for you? The, the answer comes in verse 15. I gave you an example so that you should do as I did to you. You know, it's, there, are, there are redemptive historical preachers that say you're never supposed to use you know, the people in Scripture as examples. You're just supposed to make them all figures of Christ. But even Christ here is like, I was just an example. Do what I did. You know, it's like, okay. It's very simple, the application of this passage is do what Jesus did. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did it to you. The Teacher and Lord humbled himself to do the work of a servant for the good of the guests. The apostles who just concluded arguing about who was greatest were to live in that same way. They were to go out to the, the dregs of the world, preach the gospel, and die. That's what were they, they were to do in the same way that Jesus did. They are to be humble servants of others. Now, do we have that in us? Do we have that in us? We cherry pick whom we serve, don't we? We do it all the time. We cherry pick people who are like us, or we cherry pick people that make us comfortable, or we cherry pick people in our 
socioeconomic status. We cherry-pick people with the same color skin. We cherry-pick people that, that have the same interests and hobbies, right? And we, we sort of despise people who don't fit into those categories. We separate from them. But do we have this in us, the humble service of others? Some of you have had children and you have begun to learn this. Right? Are children always fun to serve? I'm getting no response at all. Children are a glorious delight. Right? Sarah? But they are constant, constant, constant work. Right? Constant teaching, constant bathing, constant feeding, constant ingratitude in the face of all those gifts, right? And yet we're called to humbly serve them. Get married. Get married and find out about humble service of others as your spouse declines over years and you're called to humble service, right? Humble service, called to do what you did for your children to your spouse who's declining. I mean, teach Sunday school. Teach Sunday school, you know? Even if you have a PhD, teach four-year-olds in Sunday school. Condescend to that level, and you'll find that they have better questions than your, your grad students. Work in the nursery. Humble service. The humblest service that we offer at this church is when you have to change a loaded diaper of some other person's child. That's terrible. They've been eating SpaghettiOs all week, and that doesn't come out well, okay? Humble service. That's what our nursery workers do. They are the example of this Christ-likeness, and it's beautiful, right? Some of us, such as myself, won't condescend to that level, and it's wicked. I do have to preach. If you let me out of preaching, I, you heard it here, I'll serve in the nursery, okay? Matt won't be preaching for like three years now. <laughs> Visit the hospital or a nursing home. Bring an elderly parent into your home for the final years of his or her life. Become a church officer. You know, and... And, and, and find out what is actually going on in people's heads and in their minds and in their lives. Only if called, though. You know, all of those things that I mentioned, though, can be done without an atti the attitude that Christ demonstrated to us. It's done, we could do all those things by lording over those under our watch. You know, you are more concerned that they conform to your demands or make 
no demands of you, then you serve them right where they have their most significant needs, right? You just serve them in a way where they're actually serving you and your own ego and, and the, 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 the things you want. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. That's what Jesus says. Are we really willing to simply serve others, or must we establish our little theocracy with ourselves at the, as the head of state? <laughs> you know? Oh, man. Uh, I could go on for an hour on that little statement. But we create little theocracies, and we put ourselves as the head of those theocracies when we don't want to serve, when we want people to bend to our view. Jesus washed feet. Jesus humbled himself. That was his greatness. That was his greatness. It was changing diapers in the nursery. That was his greatness. Ryle says this, there seems little doubt that our Lord's all-seeing eyes saw a rising unwillingness in the minds of the apostles to do such menial things as they had just seen him do. Puffed up with their old Jewish expectations of thrones and kingdoms in this world, secretly self-satisfied with their own position as our Lord's friends, these poor Galileans were startled at the idea of washing people's feet. They could not bring themselves to believe that Messiah's service entailed work like this. They could not yet take in the grand truth that true Christian greatness consisted in doing good to others. And hence, they needed our Lord's warning, word of warning. If he had humbled himself to do humbling work, his disciples must not hesitate to do the same. I know this is difficult. This is very difficult. It really is hard to bring ourselves down to those we, you know, we think are less than us, isn't it? It is really hard to do menial tasks in which we will not be lauded for our work, in which the only, the only accolades we'll get is some form of treasure in heaven. It is really hard not to be dead set on building our own reputations and kingdoms in the world by doing only that which people get impressed by. The whole feminist movement has been built on the fact that they believe shuffling papers in some office has infinitely more value than burping a crying baby who has a gas bubble. When you are asked to do something that you believe is below your station, remember the eternal Son of God washing some dirty men's feet. Remember that. If you know these things, he says, you are blessed if you do them. If you know these things, if you know that it's a blessing to serve others and, and follow my example, then you're blessed if you do them. Right? Knowledge of what is right without follow-through is the path of unhappiness, unblessedness. Knowledge of what is right carried out in your life is the path of happiness, of blessedness, of basking in the smile of God, even and especially those small and menial tasks. 
So you know where blessing is to be found, right? Will you serve others? Will you serve others in menial ways? Will you be a doorkeeper in the house of God? Will you change a diaper when some other person's child has given it to you? Will you show up for a church work day and get your shoes dirty? Will you allow your children to be taught by other people? Or will you give, only give yourself to that which immediately enhances your reputation, your clout, and your little kingdom? That's what it will remain, if that's your intent. A tiny little kingdom that you're deluded about with your self-importance. You see, it wasn't just the foot washing of Jesus that gives us an example of humbling oneself to serve others. It was every single part of his incarnation. God Almighty, born of a woman, lived under the law, endured mocking, died on a cross, thirsted and hungered, etc., etc., etc. And even now, think of it, he has a body and is spatially limited so that he can continually live and make intercession for you at the right hand of God. And we find it hard to lift a hand for someone unless they're going to give us some sort of kickback. We despise the least among us and have no patience for the weak. If our Savior had had that same attitude, we'd be dead in our sins dead in our sins. Serve, serve others. Do those menial tasks, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, it is a rebuke to us to see Jesus, your eternal son, humble himself and give us an example of blessing others, blessing others that are, that are of a different station. Here's God washing men's feet. And so, Father, I pray that in, after, after this sermon that we would examine ourselves, that, we would, that you would reveal to us where we are failing, where we are, um, our pride is keeping us from from serving others. Our pride is keeping us from wanting to be like Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in our thoughts, that you would help us to have a better, more proper view of, of our height. And, Father, that you would help us to see the glory of others, that they bear your image. They're image bearers of you, and they are precious in your sight. And so help us to serve. Help us to do this without grumbling and complaining. Help us to uh, do this because we love your son and because there's blessedness in following his example. Father, we pray that we we would demonstrate the love of Christ to those around us. I pray that I pray that we would connected to this remove planks from our eyes when we do the work of removing specks from other people's eyes. 
do that humbling work so that then we can see rightly to remove the speck from our brother's eyes. So Lord, humble us. We confess to you our incessant pride. And we ask that you would, by the power of the Spirit, by the working of your word, would help us to put it to death, to mortify that sin. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.